back to the Real Estate Rundown. Today, I am interviewing a guy that I've been a guest on his podcast with his brother. I've met him in person a couple of times, and I'm excited to be able to talk with my friend, Tim Lyons, who is here to share how he has transitioned not only from a full career into real estate, but as we were talking before the show, is planning a retirement that is set up because of his real estate. So welcome to the show, Tim. Shannon, thank you so much for the opportunity to come on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, bud. As we were getting distracted before the show, we have a lot in common. And the one thing that we do love is the foundation of this country, which is capitalism and the fact that you can control your time, you can control where your future goes, uh, but it's going to require a little bit of hard work. And Tim, you've definitely put in that work Give my listeners a little bit of a quick snapshot of your career and uh, what that entails and, and how you got to where you're sitting today. I love it. Thank you for the opportunity. So Shannon, I've been a New York City firefighter for just over 18 years, 18 and a half years or so. And long story short, Santa Claus bought me a police scanner when I was, I think, nine years old. And <laughs> I attached it to my bike and I used to follow the fire engines all over town. I grew up on a, a place in called Long Island, which is in New York, and I couldn't shake it. I was nine years old. I just literally could not stop following fire engines. That followed me through to college. I was at Providence College on 9-11-2001, and I woke up to everybody in my dorm going crazy, saying that New York City was under attack. And growing up just outside of New York City, I knew that I was going to know a ton of people. I just I, I couldn't understand what was happening. I, I was watching TV. Finally, it was the World Trade Center. And I knew that my dad and my uncles didn't work down there, so I was thankful for that. But come to know by the end of the day that my Uncle Al was a captain in the New York City Fire Department, and he was buried under Tower 2 of the World Trade Center. And before he had left to go to the scene, he was in charge of the fireboats at the time. He brought a special radio with him, and he was able to radio to the dispatcher exactly where he was. And their current radios at the time, they couldn't do that. So only because he had this special radio could he tell people where he was. But then and there, I was pre-med at the time, Shannon. I was an EMT. I was on the track to become a, I wanted to be a trauma surgeon. But that night I decided I was going to be a New York City firefighter and finished out college, ended up not being pre-med anymore. And two, I, two weeks after graduating Providence, I became a New York City firefighter. And I've been doing that since I'm 22 years old. In the process, I became an ER nurse. I did that for about 10 years. That was my side hustle. People couldn't believe that I was a nurse on the side because that's sometimes <laughs> people's main gig, right? That's a lot of times people's main gigs. But I loved it. I had two jobs that I loved. It was not the same every day. It was exciting. The bills were paid. My, I had a pension to look forward to. I had retirement accounts were getting funded. Two vacations a year. And then I had three girls. And <laughs> right now they're 12, 9, and 4. So when they were little, I worked 80, 90 hours a week because they, my wife stayed home. We made the decision and I'm a worker bee. And right. then they got to be older and I started to feel it. They felt it. My wife felt it. So real estate came on the scene. So really quick, I partnered on a three unit because I was scared, didn't have a ton of capital and I'm not handy. So I wanted to do it with somebody who could help me out. And I got my proof of confidence, proof of concept, I should say. And I did better on my taxes. I had cash flow and I was hooked. So from there, I'm going to throw it back to you if you want to unpack any of that. The thing is that happens to a lot of people, right? I remember my wife at the time and I were on the five-year plan and five months into our marriage, I, I was informed that there was going to be three of us in a one-bedroom house. And there's nothing like that sense of responsibility that lights a fire in you. But a lot of people... It doesn't light a fire. It just creates dread because they don't know what to do. So with that, you had this thought process with your daughters and what was going to happen and how you were going to get it done. What made the change? You've gone from a threeplex 
all the way up to where you're at now. That's quite the jump. How did that evolve? When I did that threeplex, it was built in 1920. It was wood framed. I had to do a new roof. New, oh, I, I didn't do it. I paid somebody to do it. New roof, new siding. And then my partner and I actually struggled through a first floor renovation. You should have seen me doing the LVP flooring. It was awesome. There was a lot of waste product. But anyway, so we did all that. And I realized that I hated being a landlord. I hated getting my phone calls. My windows are rattling. There's a bat in the back stairwell. There's a draft coming through the doorway. Just all these things where I felt compelled to take that hour and a half ride over to the property and do something about it, you know? Now in New um, York City, an hour and a half ride, was that like eight blocks? <laughs> yeah, really. And now I had three jobs. So although I was hooked on the real estate as an asset class and as a financial vehicle, I was not hooked on being a landlord. So very quickly, I pivoted into getting educated on commercial real estate because I was down for about two years. I didn't listen to a song on the radio. I couldn't tell you what was on the top 40. I was straight podcast, audible, just books about business, real estate, marketing, accounting, taxes. So I got myself educated on, on commercial real estate because I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I could, as Tim the Fireman, Tim the ER nurse, understand balance sheets, profit and loss statements, rent rolls, above the line, below the line expenses, underwriting. All this seemed like somebody in the private equity world on Wall Street should be doing it, not me. Once I got educated on the process and how to do it, it was during COVID that I began this process. I guess it became a COVID project. And I realized that commercial real estate, Shannon, as was a team sport, right? So I didn't have to do it like I had to do it on my three right. flex. But I had to find out something that I was good at. And fortunately for me, I had my brother, Greg, who lives in Virginia. He wanted to join me and we wanted to go on this journey together. So together we started Cityside Capital and we found out that we were good at raising capital for real estate. We were good at communicating and investor relations and that kind of stuff. So that's really the genesis of how our company got started and really why we we picked the niche that we did. And it's Again, back to that worker bee, busy person, I've heard the phrase a lot. If it is to be, it's up to me. And so many people don't take that step. They look at that three girls, that's three weddings at a minimum. That's <laughs> Thank God I'm sitting down. For those of you listening, this is worth watching to watch Tim just wince at the thought of what that's going to cost. Yeah. And you've got all these things and all these responsibilities and how do you free up more time? And the reality is that once you start looking at real estate, you start to see that it is actually a magic can opener to get that freedom all back if that's what you want. But the thing that I think you said that was most important is real estate is a team sport. I've got full-time employees. I've got part-time employees. I've got consultants. I've got all different kinds of people that fit into this team that do their specialty. I just need to know that I need it done. And you did the thing that a lot of people fail to do is they fail to take that first step and get educated. Then the next step that you have to do after the education is you got to actually apply it. You can be the smartest guy in, in the real estate game, but unless you're taking action and learning and applying what uh, you, you've, you've been taught, you're not going to get anywhere. Let, let's talk about that journey. How did that come about? You, you, you figured out what you didn't know. You know more now. You feel a bit, little bit more dangerous, but you also probably realize that you don't know what you don't know but you've got to take action to do something. Tell, walk me through your first deal and what that kind of, what that was like when you decided you were going to take these actions. So I decided to take these actions once I got financially educated on top of the real estate. And this is what I mean by that. I could work a lot of overtime and get paid every two weeks, but that's not going to get me ahead, right? right? I can put money into my 457 and my 401k. I can max them out every year. Not going to get me ahead. 
it came down to one word, and that was equity, right? Actually, two words. Cash flow was the second word, but idea. And the first one was equity. And if and equity is the jet fuel for your wealth. And yeah. I had to figure out how, as Tim the fireman, Tim the ER nurse, how can I position myself for equity? And a lot of people just say, my, my home. I bought a home. It's American dream. I, get, I can write off my mortgage, and that's my retirement account. That wasn't good enough for me. So I came down to two things, real estate and starting my own business. I already had two jobs, Shannon. I wasn't thrilled buying a franchise or starting like a restaurant or something because those were the ideas that I had in my head about starting a business. And believe me, my wife wasn't thrilled either because I wasn't home as it was. So real estate was something that I always was interested in. So that's really what made me want to go down that route. So then after the education, I aligned myself with a group that kind of like a mastermind group that like focuses on multifamily purchasing and asset management and all that kind of stuff. Because it's important to have accountability when you go down a road like this, because there could be shiny object syndrome that we all have. And yeah. then we hit a roadblock or two and we're like, ah, you know what? That was a cool idea, but I'm just not going to go forward anymore. I'm going to go back to my little safe spot in life. And it wasn't that bad. But because I had that accountability, I kept on going. So I had a coach. His name was Chris. And Chris had a 43 unit in Pennsylvania that he was getting under contract. And he gave me the opportunity of a lifetime to join him on that project. I got a front row seat about how to get under contract, the financing, the due diligence process, who's going to manage it. All this stuff about, they say, like, you got to do it to understand it. And that was the opportunity he gave me. And so at the end of the project, he said, Tim, you want to give Raising Capital a shot? And I was like, dude, I'm like, I don't know if I could raise $5. I don't even know if I could raise a dollar besides my own dollar. Don't count on me. And it was a uh, $5.7 million purchase price. And we were raising just about $3 million in equity for the deal. But he said, no, nah, man. He goes, come out of your comfort zone. This is what you do. This is how I do it. Friends, family, just tell them what you're doing. And so that's what I did. And that was our first deal. We ended up raising 150000 which I thought was incredible at the time. Now we raised that in a few minutes sometimes. For the whole deal, it was like, wow, was, you know, this is going to work. So then we had to proof of concept, right? People wanted to know more. People in our circle were like, Tim, we love you. Greg, we love you, man. But this is your first deal. Right. So maybe and it's COVID. By the way, this is COVID, September of 2020. <laughs> Everybody's you know, paying their rent. Cancel rent movement is going on. Like people aren't at work. The fund, the liquidity environment was a little bit sketchy, right? But we had a, Chris had a relationship at a community bank at the time. And I'm, uh, you know, so, all right, cool. So then the law of the first deal kicked in. I'm sure people have heard that. The, yeah. You do the first deal and the second deal comes in rapid succession. And then all of a sudden within our little group from the mastermind, somebody had an opportunity for us to work with them for 144 units in Greenville, South Carolina. And I was psyched. I was like, wow, that's an incredible market, right? So we did our due diligence. We go through the whole process again. And now we raise, I don't know, close to 600000 And this is, again, this is like December of 2020. So we're still locked down. And that's when it really crystallized to us that this has legs. And as far as capital raising, Shannon, there's a whole legal side to capital raising. And Greg and I had to make a decision. If we're going to stay on this trajectory, what's the best way forward? And that's what we did. We started the yeah. capital raising business. I think back to what you what we were talking about earlier, this is a team sport. And what you've really figured out how to do is to play your position and play it well. And, and I look at our journey and our growth where oftentimes we're the developer, we're the contractor, we're the fundraiser, we're the manager. And that puts a lot of stress and it's caused me to build a larger organization. And, and that was available to me because I didn't, my full-time job was Right. And adding the right people, putting them in the right places was fairly easy to do because I wasn't trying to do it in the nooks and crannies of two jobs and a family. 
This was my job. And there's a lot of people like you, Tim, that have gone down this road and they've understood that this does multiply. It does snowball. You started out at 150. Second one was 600. And I know you've gone on to raise multiple millions of dollars since then. And it becomes something that is now looking more and more like your primary focus. You and I talked before the show, you're 20 months out from retirement. And that's a very short window, especially in the real estate life cycle. But why did you focus on just capital raising? I, I think it's important that you did pick a position to play. But why was it, what was it about capital raising that, that made you feel like that was your and Greg's fit? This is a great question because I've thought about it a lot, right? So let's just go back, right? We're, we're, it's COVID, we're locked down. We can't travel anywhere. Uh, I was an essential worker, quote unquote, so I was able to get on the highways. But there was not a lot of like opportunity in my mind for me to go check out new markets, Salt Lake City, Austin, Texas, Tampa, Florida. There was no traveling. It just wasn't going to happen. So that's one thing. The other thing was I wasn't going, I wasn't in a position to leave my W-2 job yet. So I wasn't going to be picking up my family and moving to Phoenix or Dallas or Boise, Idaho. It just wasn't in the cards. So I wasn't going to be boots on the ground. I couldn't really travel to check out different markets at the time. So it only made sense to to partner with people who were on the ground already in those strategic markets who had the knowledge of which side of the street is better and all that stuff, right? That, That granular knowledge. And so that was one thing. The other thing was I was brand new, right, Shannon? So who's going to trust my underwriting for the first time, right? Or <laughs> I don't want, it's funny because part of the education process early on was to call lenders and introduce yourself. So I remember I'm actually, I had moved out of my house for nine weeks during the beginning of COVID. I think it was April, March or April of 2020. And my coach said to me, start calling bankers and introduce yourself and lenders and tell them what you're doing and what markets you're into. So I remember calling this guy one time. And he's, I'm sorry. He's like, who the hell are you? And I'm like, Tim Lyons from Cityside Capital. He goes, dude, he goes, you're trying to buy real estate right now? He goes, I'm up to my eyeballs and PPP applications. We're not even touching real estate right now, man. Yeah. Why don't you call me back when this thing ends? And I'm like, all right, great talking to you. Thanks a lot. For so much. Thank you so much for your time. And it was hard, right? So like, where do I fit? And that was really yeah. why the capital raising, I think, took off from that point. And when you look at what that is, capital raising is brand management, is managing your network. It's educating people to some degree. It's plugging them into other resources. It's showcasing the expertise of the other members on the team. It's really uh, a great place for people to start. But let's talk about some of the dangers with that. You are talking to your friends and family, right? You're talking to people that know, love, and trust you about something. How did you get comfortable with being able to understand your deal well enough, the one you were participating in, trusting your sponsor well enough that his underwriting was going to work and filling in the gaps there that you felt comfortable going to mom and dad and aunts and uncles and the guys you're running the line with about this is a good deal. How did that evolution happen? That's a great question. Listen, investing involves risk and I am cheap. I didn't grow up with money. Never thought I'd have really a lot of my money of my own. Incredibly. You're married, you still don't. Yeah. And like I had an incredibly bereft sense of like financial security. When it came time for this, I really had to understand the vehicle. I had to understand personally how this works, why it works. So that was a big piece of this puzzle, right? And then it was a transference to my friends and family, right? So it was 
really borrowing the credibility from my coach, Chris. He was known for his underwriting within the multifamily world, right? He had sold an, a multifamily analyzer. Like he actually still sells it to this day that groups use. So that really gave me the confidence and the clarity and the certainty to move forward with having conversations with people that I that I love, right? You think I'm cheap. You just meet my brother, Greg, and meet my dad, and my <laughs> uncles, and my it, 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 it runs in the family. So I think once I had that certainty, that knowledge, that clarity, I had the, my coach was the lead partner in the deal. And he had done seven, I think he did seven full cycle deals at that point. He had the experience and I was borrowing credibility and experience from him and making the connection to, to, to folks in my network. It wasn't just as simple, by the way, I didn't have any systems or processes. I had my a Yahoo email account and I had my cell phone and I was picking up the phone and calling great aunt Sally and my college roommates and other people. And that's how I made that happen. But it was because I had that transference, that knowledge, any question they asked me, I either had the answer for them or I said, you know what, give me five minutes. I'm going to go call Chris. And either I connected Chris and them on the phone or I got the answer from him and I brought it back to my people. That's really where it came from. You really began to learn by doing, right? You Absolutely. had the basic understanding. It's like understanding. I could read a lot of a lot of manuals and I could understand your job in principle. I could understand how to activate the fire truck apparatus and do all that stuff, but it's actually getting out there and doing it and being proactive about that because a lot of people wind up getting analysis paralysis. They wind up so book smart that you can't hardly talk to them. But when it comes time to putting stuff together and actually making it work, they're afraid to break some eggs, right? They're afraid to make things to say anything because they might make a mistake or to do anything because it might not work perfectly. As That's we right. both know in real estate, nothing works perfect, right? The one constant in real estate is change, right? We're going back to 8% interest rates. That's been 95% of my career has been at 8%, right? So this is familiar territory to, for me, but not for a lot of people, but it's still change in real estate. It's still, does your process work? Does the business plan, does it execute? Are you able to have reserves and, and, and those kinds of things? And you don't really realize how important that is until your, your great aunt Sally is asking you, what happens if this doesn't work? What is your backup plan? How are you going to navigate this? Those kind of questions that you can't possibly think of all those. And that's the growth cycle that so many people stop short of. I'm sure you heard no more than you heard yes. I'm sure you got questions that you felt very embarrassed that you didn't know. They seem 100%. so basic when Tim from work asks you, what about this? And you go, what? let me call Chris. And then you get back and you've got the answer. And you're like, God, man, I should have known that. But the reality is it takes that uncomfortableness to get there. It takes that willingness to put in the effort, to put in the time that's required to make sure that at the end of the day, you've got the answers. And now I don't think I'm going out on a limb here, but I don't think there's any question that an investor is going to ask you that you don't know. So far, so good. And right. the thing about it is I've been doing this about four years. The longer I've been doing it, the network has grown tremendously. Now I have people investing a million at a time or two yeah. million at a time. And yeah. there's tax questions that they need to know answers to. And maybe their tax guy or girl doesn't know. So right. immediately I can connect them with somebody in the real estate tax world, a tax right. attorney, a CPA. And solving that problem for somebody has made our business that much better.
early on. They say you get paid in proportion of the amount of problems that you solve for people. And that's what we're doing now. So yes, if I can't answer a question on a technical basis, I, I have a Rolodex a network, great people to go to. And that is the, that's the magic sauce for us, at least. Let's talk about that for just a minute. They say your network is your net worth, right? But the practicality of it is nobody's expecting you to know everything. But if people that know this information, it shows that you understand the value of the question. You understand the value of the equation that's trying to be solved. And you are in contact and you have relationship with people of the caliber that can solve that question. Absolutely. So when you go to proving credibility, if you can get a tax attorney on the phone or if you can get a complicated estate question answered, I'm, I just wrote an email before this podcast where I'm connecting two people that are in totally different fields, but have one thing in common that could connect them. And the fact that I know each of them has established an instant credibility with both of them. And because I know the guy that can solve the first guy's problem, then that builds my credibility. That builds my value in his eyes because it's staying. I didn't know Shannon knew that guy. What? Who else does he know? Mm -hmm. And in that effort, you're really standing strong on that foundation of, hey, listen, I'm not the guy that knows everything, but I know the guy that knows the guy that knows what you need to know. And being able to do that is one of the best ways. I remember when my son was 20 years old and he was going to become a realtor. You know, his, there's five generations of realtors in our family. And he was like, dad, what do I do? And I said, there's two things you got to do. Number one is you got to be the sharpest dressed person in the room. He had a job right out of high school working at men's warehouse. So that wasn't a problem, right? Always showed up suited and tied, right? And every, everything. So he was recognizable. The other thing I told him he had to do is you had to be the one that connected everybody to the thing they had. The, the problem they had, you got to solve their problems. And pretty soon you become the hub in everybody's wheel because they know that Devin knows the answer. So then all of a sudden Devin was fielding all these calls. Where do I get a plumber? Hey, do you know where the best uh, accounting firm is? Hey, I was looking to get uh, my car repaired. And there was times when he was reaching out to his network to go, hey, who's a good car repair guy? But he built so much credibility in such a short period of time by just knowing people that could take care of the need that someone right. had that pretty soon they were calling him about everything. And now when it came time to sell the house, he was already the logical call. Yeah, you got right? no choice, but to call Devin. He's, he's right. my guy. That's right. Hey, Devin, do you know a realtor? I mean, that's not how this conversation is supposed to go. But, and a lot of people overlook that. A lot of people look past that and they go, man, I don't have a network or I, I don't like doing that. But the reality is I don't know too many people that love networking, but I love doing it because I know that I can find value in connecting two people that have no other way to know each other that can solve that problem. And then when that person's got another problem, I'm going to be first on their list. We had a group of investors who sold their practice and they were going to sell the real estate associated with it, the building that it was in. There was two separate transactions and they wanted to do a 1031 exchange. And they were talking to Greg and I about maybe doing a tenant in common agreement with a, a larger either multifamily or self-storage property. And we connected them with a CPA who basically gave them a rundown about executing the 1031 exchange and how that's going to look for them as far as cash flow, tax liability going forward. And then they said, if you do the lazy 1031 exchange, which is to you know take your proceeds, don't put it in the 1031 vehicle, but just use the proceeds into the deal. And at $500,000, right? That was the example that they gave. On a five-year hold, it was a multifamily property that they were looking at. The taxable difference over that five-year period was going to be, I think, 28000 and change. 
So for all the rigmarole that a 1031 can entail and the stress and the timelines <laughs> and stuff like that, at the end of the day, this guy didn't need the cash flow. He was already you know, retiring and stuff like that, but he wanted the place to put his capital. And when he found that answer, it was in front of him from a CPA, black and white charts, 20 page report. That was the key. And I'll tell you, that is one of our investors, right? Yeah. Because we were able to, not me, say, well, you know what? I've heard of this thing called the lazy 1031 exchange. And let me tell you about it. No, let me connect you with the guy who does it for a living. That's got 30 years experience and he can show you in a uh, 20 page report. So that was the value of connecting folks and, and getting uh, problems solved. And again, the guy is understanding that these are the caliber of people that, that will give you the time of day that will help you solve that problem. And it, it's such an important thing that a lot of people in any industry forget, but it's especially essential in the capital raising industry. Because then we'll call this guy Sam. Sam's talking to a fellow doctor and he's guy's talking about the same thing. Next thing he's going to do is you got to talk to Tim and his accountant, man, because those guys are magic workers. Next thing you're involved in another transaction with another guy with a chunk of money that's going to have something to do with it. And everybody's built that trust. That's and it. I think that as you continue to build your network, you're looking for those people because by being of service and putting what they're looking for first, you're going to get what you need, right? You're going to get the referrals. You're going to get, you're going to get the investors. You're going to get those things, but it's about looking outward and trying to solve other people's problems, which is one of the main reasons why we've grown our organization to the size we have. I don't necessarily need to keep doing this, but the reality is I love solving other people's problems. I love helping people get out of the J-O-B. I love helping people figure out the path to retirement at 45 when it just dawns on them that they've only got a few years left to get there. And when you can solve those problems and take care of that, then you've built a bridge into their network and everybody they know. So what are a couple of the other things, Tim, that have become very important to you in the, the focus that you have with your business on capital raising, other than the networking and the knowledge base that you put together? Without a doubt, it's communication. It's great to run a business and have a lead generation strategy and a marketing strategy and getting people into the funnel and that whole thing. But when somebody has $50,000 of money or 100000 or whatever it might be, and they trust you enough, right? And they trust the deal and they, they've done the due diligence and all the things, and they actually do it. There's a responsibility that I feel, and my brother feels it too, to, hey, here's my cell phone number, right? When the first monthly report comes out and you want to go over it together and I'll share my screen, I will do that because I want you to understand this is how it's going to be. This is how, this is what to look for. This is what that means. That means something to people, right? When they're a brand new investor, hey, here's my cell phone or here's my calendar link. If you want to go over that investor summary for the deal yeah. we just put out on our email, let's take the time. Just you and I. Yeah. You don't have to do a webinar or anything like that. That means a lot to people. So it's the follow-up. It's it's not trying to make the sale every time. Nobody wants to have that. Nobody wants in your face. This deal is almost done. Three spots left. Like yeah. Nobody wants that. <laughs> luckily for Greg and I, we both have our W-2 job still. I would say luckily and unluckily. Like We don't need to do the next deal just to put food on the table, right? We're not looking to just do deals, especially in this environment just to get a couple of shekels. I think that's been our superpower is making that communication rock solid, connecting with the investors and potential investors. And look, there's been deals that we've been a part of that where the cash flow hasn't been as great as we thought we we're going to be, right? Because interest right. rates have gone up. We've hit our cap a little prematurely. And listen, that's a phone call. That's an email and a phone call. Hey, yep. this is what we're doing. This here's how we're going to mitigate. Here's how we're looking to refinance and drive NOI and the whole thing. 
but at least you're not going silent. There's groups out there that go silent on investors when the things don't go as rosy. Right. So that's a big piece of what we're trying to accomplish here. And that comes down, that's the same business practice that everybody should have in any business. Well, the reality is it's not the hard close. It's not getting them in. It's taking care of them after they're there. And and I know you, and I, I've talked with you and your brother several times that the thing that I do know is that you, you feel like I do, that the investor's money is more sacred than my own, right? That is the sacred cow in the room. That is the thing that has to be protected because that represents trust. And that represents everything that they're looking at you to be responsible for. And unlike Wall Street and unlike some of the, the shenanigans that are going on at that level, there's responsibility and there's a, a sense of duty to the investor. And when I, when people are talking to me about how do I vet an investor or a, a sponsor, how do I embed a, a capital raiser? I'm, I'm always wanting them to get a couple of references of their current investors and call them, ask them what that communication looks like. H how does Tim talk to us? Is, is he sending out a, an email once a month, once a quarter? Does he, can you contact him? And, and then the other thing that I tell him to do is if you want to call him back at 630 in the morning or 730 at night to see if they answer the phone. These are just simple things that this is not business as usual. And that's the reason why you're not with Charles Schwab. You're with Tim Lyons. That's the reason that you're invested in Main Street, not Wall Street, is because you're really looking for that accountability that doesn't exist in one realm. And the way that you get that is by, by working with people that you know and trust. And there's only one way to figure that out. But I really honestly uh, wish more people would spend the time to vet who the money goes to. Because there's you and I, we could sit here for hours and swap horror stories about the things that we've heard, especially in the, the current climate conditions that we have, the economy and everything with interest rates. There is turmoil in the market. These are problems to solve, not things to run from. Yeah. And that's why we do an incredible amount of due diligence on the front end of our, the sponsors that we work with, right? We want to know yeah. a lot about them. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, exactly. it's a little bit onerous. It yeah. costs them money. It costs them a couple of uh, months of their lives, questionnaires, background checks, the whole thing, because I want some people with some gray hair on, on, on the line with me, not somebody that goes to a conference over, over a weekend. They say, oh, I'm going to be a syndicator. Yeah. You know? But yeah, all that stuff is right up my alley. And it's funny you say that too, because I'm on an incredible amount of email lists, right? And recently I put out a deal to our investors and I'm on somebody else's email list and I get the same deal in my inbox, except the metrics are all different. They're all less than what I'm offering to my investors. And that really sat with me wrong because <laughs> I'm putting out a deal with a higher pref and a higher split. It's the same deal, right? And this other person is maybe doing a fund to fund model and they got to make money somehow, right? So they take some of the cream off the top and they're offering yeah. their investors 200 basis points less on their pref and, and a negative deleterious split on the back end. And I'm like, that's crazy because people are going to invest with this guy. And anyway, so I, yes, I would say know your sponsor, know your, we are registered reps of a broker dealer. So we work with a broker dealer that only does commercial investments, multifamily, self-storage and industrial. We don't do stocks, bonds, ETFs. We don't do 60, 40 portfolios or portfolio construction or anything like that. We don't make recommendations. But you know what? Uh, because we do that, Shannon, there's a lot of compliance and there's a lot yeah. of checks and balances. And when I saw that, that was a little cowboyish to me and I just didn't, it didn't sit right with me. So yes, make sure you yeah. know who you're working with. And the fact that you are registered with a broker dealer, right? There's more questions asked in that process than after a boy's night out, right? So you really, again, here's another level of transparency. Here's another uh, level of education that you've undertaken to make sure that people know that you know, and that mm -hmm. you're being, I wouldn't say you're being scrutinized, but you're being regulated. You're being 
you're being held to a higher standard. And there's a lot of do's and don'ts that a lot of people are figuring out they didn't do the do's and they did a lot of the don'ts, right? Or that the person that they've invested with has done that. There's that part where the due diligence uh, should be on the investor, but there's also the part where the fundraiser needs to be accountable and responsible, just like the sponsor does. And it, and that's the thing that I keep trying to impress on people because we're like you, there is no hard close. This is what we've got. Does it work? If it doesn't, let's talk about the taxes, the benefits that it, you could have. If not, I, th there's other people that I might say that you should go look at, but that doesn't mean that I'm recommending their deal, that I know these guys and I know they're good operators. Uh, you need to scrutinize the deal. And one of the things that we've found to be incredibly helpful in that arena is then taking that time to educate that investor on what we are offering, why we're in the position we are, what the compliance that we have to go through is. And at the end of the day, oftentimes the investor goes, wow, thanks for helping me understand that. Now I feel more comfortable with who you are and what you're representing that now I think I want to do that. And I think that a lot of people are just here going, now serving number seven, you came through the funnel, here's the deal. You really got to do this deal. You really got to do this deal. And then it's off to what's next if that person doesn't jump in right away. Instead of taking the time to truly educate and learn and listen from them as well. But you've got to understand that not every deal fits every person. There are other deals that may work better for them and it may not be yours. But again, it's back to the network. It's back to understanding. It's back to educating. And Tim, I, I, I know that in our conversations, I've really come to learn that both you and your brother take this very seriously and have spent a lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of money because I've seen you at several events where you've taken the effort to get to the place that you have the education and the background and the network and the things that are necessary to be successful at this. And so I want to thank you personally for taking the time to do that, because I truly believe that 2008 could have been a completely avoided if we'd had a more intelligent investor. Well, unfortunately, we didn't. Everybody was doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, we're seeing in this last bubble uh, that there was a lot of crazy stuff doing. Uh, I don't think we're going to see it first, but we're seeing a lot of fallout from investors that didn't do the kind of things that we've just talked about on the show. I really want to appreciate you stopping by the Real Estate Rundown and giving us that knowledge. If people want to know more about you, because they, they probably don't want to know about Greg, let's just be honest. Let's be honest. But if they want to know more about you and how they might find out more about the deals you're doing and the places you're, you're doing them in, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, you can email me, Tim, at citysidecap.com. Our website is simply citysidecap.com. And the phone number to reach us is 516-521-7762. And that phone is manned 24 hours a day, just like the fire station you That's work right. at, right? That's it. <laughs> All right. Tim, I appreciate you being on the Real Estate Rundown. Guys, if you would, subscribe and like this channel so that we can see that you're appreciating the content and we create more of it. And until next time, guys, on the Real Estate Rundown, have a great day.